1: Before we get
2: started today, I want to tell you about a cool limited run series that WFAE is putting out. It's called Work It. It's running November 13th to December 18th, and they're having conversations with people about their relationships to their jobs and how those relationships shape their view of the world. It's hosted by TEDx Charlotte organizers Stephanie Hale and Jill Byers, who follow their curiosities underneath the job and the question, what do you do? and into the beautifully complex identities of people we encounter in our everyday lives, from carpet layers to lawyers, barbers to burlesque performers, and beyond. Check that out wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Mobile banking requires downloading
0: the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It is time for another episode of Labor. Amy!
2: <laughs> this is Labor, the social science on women, work, and motherhood. I'm Amy Westervelt. And
0: I'm Elise Hu. This show is all about how motherhood got messed up culturally, but we can fix it. So, Amy, today we're talking to the godmother of parenting podcasts, mm-hmm. Hillary Frank. If you haven't heard of her, she worked on Stories for This American Life. She started The Longest Shortest Time, a parenting podcast, and wrote a book called Weird Parenting Wins. And she wrote this amazing op-ed in the New York Times last year all about how and why the mom
2: beat isn't taken seriously. That's right. That op-ed was great. It's called The Special Misogyny Reserved for Moms. We talked to Hillary earlier this year, pre-COVID, but this conversation feels even more relevant now. In the first couple of months of the pandemic hitting, I kept waiting to see stories about the impact on moms. But it wasn't until the past month or so that we started to get real reporting on how this was impacting working moms. And you know what really pisses me off? We're still only seeing stories in the parenting or mom verticals, even though what's happening to working parents right now absolutely impacts everything and especially the economy.
0: Yeah, it shouldn't be siloed, right, into any sort of vertical because how is what's happening to families in America not a hardcore policy or economic story? Yeah. Or at least part of the overall pandemic coverage.
2: Yeah, exactly. Instead, we get these like daily stories in the mom verticals and then the occasional gee whiz story in the rest of the newspaper about like, you know, a mom who had to quit her job. I think the whole history of how this stuff has been talked about in the media is definitely playing into how we're seeing it covered now. But More importantly, it has an impact on how seriously people take these issues, period. And Hillary has a lot of insights into that.
0: Right, so you're about to hear our talk. She talked a lot about how basically as soon as she started trying to cover motherhood, all of her colleagues in the newsroom were like, "Oh, that's cute. You have a mommy blog now."
2: I don't know if you've had that experience, but I know I like I was a science reporter for 15 years and then I started writing about this stuff and a bunch of people were like, "So you're like on the mom beat now? What's that?" About? Right. It's, <laughs> it's weirdly considered
0: soft. Yeah. When then also we have cultural scripts saying the opposite, like this is the hardest
2: job you'll ever do, right? Right, right. Yeah. So
0: why do people assume reporting on or writing about motherhood isn't serious or isn't hard news?
2: I don't know. That's kind of what we're going to get into today because it touches on economics, labor, sexism, gender issues, racism. Like there's not – I can't think of a single thing. Health, you know, that it doesn't intersect with. So it's weird that there's still this notion of it being like a silly thing. I'll give you a little juicy personal anecdote. I was asked to judge applications for a prestigious journalism fellowship recently. And (laughs) everyone was vetting these proposals. And one of the proposals was about doing kind of a – a researched, reported project on motherhood, and a woman from a very well-known journalism organization said, I mean, I just have to say, like, what is this proposal? Like, mom stuff come at us when you have something serious to talk about? And I, like, as you might suspect, totally flipped my shit and was, like, shaking, like, excuse me, but that is the exact reason that we need projects like this. Wait, yeah. you didn't sit idly and not speak up? You? I did not just stomach my emotions, no. <laughs>
0: Yeah. A lot of us actually internalize these criticisms, right? That there's hard buckets and soft buckets. And even though the work of motherhood is super hard and there's a lot of research and science behind just how challenging it is, there's a voice in our heads that often says it's not considered valid or relevant
2: in the larger scope of things. Right. right, which is why you don't actually hear about this stuff that often. It's why you have a bazillion personal essays, but very little reported work on motherhood in mainstream media. Aren't you glad we're here? Yeah. I'm really glad <laughs> just, I'm just, here. just like, you know, um, so... Oh. <laughs> So I'm going to play you some tape from one of the very first mom bloggers. She's a woman named uh, Heather B. Armstrong, but she goes by Deuce. Deuce. I love Deuce. Yeah, she's hilarious. And she was really early to this, and she has had a lot of experience with people sort of patting her on the head. Um, So here she is talking a little bit about how she started writing about this stuff in the first place. The reality was that I didn't have any friends with kids, and writing about it was the Best way that I knew how to deal with the fact that I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. I had no idea. Motherhood did not come naturally to me at all. Yeah. So I developed all these relationships with women online who were just like, "Oh my gosh, yeah, absolutely. This is totally same me for sure." And so this huge community of women, especially in the early days of mommy blogging, where we all knew each other and we all hung out with each other and we all shared stories, and it was a really tight knit community. That sounds so
0: innocent, but a real support system, right? Something that's really hard to find on the internet
2: these days. So Deuce is basically part of internet history, like not just mom blog history, but like she was one of the first people, and I think she was the first person to be fired for her personal blog. So like she's written up in all of these legal textbooks too, Uh (laughs) because before she started talking about motherhood, she had a personal blog and she was like making fun of coworkers and someone told on her. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and yeah, but a huge figure in blogging. Yes, huge. What Deuce was writing in her early years about motherhood being hard, about postpartum depression, that was all pretty new 15 years ago and actually really new in sort of the canon of how we talk about motherhood and how women are allowed to talk about motherhood. So in that way, she was a was, trailblazer. Yeah, it was somewhat subversive.
0: You probably had all these blogs spring up, too, because you could self-publish and no one was formally covering it.
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't right. have
0: these mainstream news organizations with the parenting channels and things like that that exist now.
2: Right, back in the early aughts, exactly. Like those things exist now because mom blogging was popular and. Sort of related to that, they've taken the shape that they have, which is to still not necessarily cover parenting in a serious way because they're riffing off of the mom blog script and they're kind of like, oh, well, this is a way to monetize. But that gets us right back to Hillary because she is someone who really did try to report on parenting and came up against just a lot of challenges on that. That conversation right after a quick word from today's sponsor.
0: Let's pick it up with Hillary right there. Hello. So thanks for doing this with us. Yeah, no problem.
1: Thanks for asking.
0: Hillary. the thing we really want to focus on is this idea of a so-called divide between hard topics and soft topics and how motherhood or just parenting in general ends up getting lumped into this notion of being unserious somehow. And you wrote a terrific op-ed about this for the New York Times called The Special Misogyny Reserved for Mothers what made you write the piece?
1: Honestly, I didn't realize it was something that needed to be said publicly, maybe until after Me Too broke. I, I was like accumulating these complaints about ways that I felt I had been misunderstood or belittled by colleagues because I was doing work about parenthood and specifically motherhood. And, and I just thought like, oh, these are just annoying things that we all deal with.
0: We'd love to hear some examples. And I want to have you read from the article. But first, can you give us some background?
1: So I had this podcast. And when I started it, you couldn't make a living just having a podcast. And I had come out of public radio. And so I was trying to pitch the pieces that I was doing for the podcast to editors at public radio. And I was not used to getting rejected all the time. I just, I had really good relationships with people in public radio and I usually got my pieces picked up. All right. Now we'll have you read a little bit. I met rejection after rejection. We're just not sure there's enough of an audience for this kind of thing. An editor said, this is just too small. Another one said, Mm. one guy put it more bluntly. Who would want to listen to this except moms? So this bias was definitely about moms. And then there was a specific episode that I wanted to pitch, um, and I'll read what I wrote about that. Perfect. In 2015, I wanted to do an episode about childbirth injuries that I could also pitch to a network radio show. Most of these injuries can be remedied by pelvic floor physical therapy, but doctors rarely recommend it or even know about it. I wanted to investigate why so many moms were living with pelvic pain for months, years even, after giving birth, resigned to painful sex or no sex at all. When I pitched a public radio editor, she told me it was an interesting topic, but that you just can't talk about something that sexually explicit on the air. Ugh! I brought the story to another radio editor, this time with an economic peg. I told him the question I wanted to ask was, what is the cost of saving a mom's sex life? He told me he wouldn't commission the story because the answer to why we don't prioritize pain-free sex is that sex is extra. Ah! It's not essential. Wow.
2: Wow. Oh, my God. It makes me so (laughs) mad. So mad. I don't know. It's like, yeah, this stuff isn't taken seriously because we never hear about it and there aren't any stories about these things.
1: It's not taken seriously and there's a double standard because NPR, as I wrote, has plenty of stories about erectile dysfunction. Totally. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have to get fairly sexually explicit to talk about those things on the radio. You have to use the word erectile, first of all. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I don't know if I've talked about this publicly, but you know how there are subscription services for clothes like Stitch Fix or for makeup? There's just various boxes they'll send you for regular delivery. Mm-hmm. I did a piece on a new box service that came out like five years ago where every month you get a period box. Mm-hmm. And then in the ad for Hello Flow or whatever it was, there were girls saying vagina and menstruation. Yeah. And I couldn't mm-hmm. get the word vagina on NPR like more than once, y- even though <laughs> it's central to a story <laughs> about menstruation. And the number right. of times that penis Gross, comes up on the air Rosalie's. Right. <laughs> but we'll say penis no problem but vagina was so offensive and they were like well you know this is going to be on the morning show and people are going to be eating their cereal no one wants to think about vaginas
2: and coffee at the same time (laughs) i mean I, i felt such a quiet
0: rage about this what convinced you to speak up
1: so i was kind of accumulating all of these complaints about how i felt kind of Mistreated and overlooked in the industry. And I was out for lunch with a friend one day, a male colleague who works in podcasting. And he was like, This is not an bad. And I was like, Oh, I, you know, I realized he was right. Mm-hmm. But I was like, But I can't, I can never write that because I'm going to anonymously quote people who will recognize themselves and I will never work again. <laughs> <laughs> And then I think I got to a point where I realized, and this was after Me Too broke, you know, I've gotten to a place where I don't think I have to worry about never working again, and I just want to get this out there.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Have you found it difficult since then to focus on topics other than motherhood or to, um, I don't
1: know, like, have you had any blowback, I guess,
2: from the the op-ed?
1: I think that, everyone's reactions to me after it came out was just overwhelmingly positive. But now when I get interviewed for things, people only want to talk to me about this. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) I was excited to talk to you guys because I feel like we're in it together and like you've had it happen to you also. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about something different. In 2017, you did a month-long series on workplace discrimination called It's a Real Mother, and you looked at what was broken in the workplace and with parental leave policies, and it offered a few solutions. What surprised you about reporting that series?
1: I was surprised. It doesn't surprise me that paid family leave is not, it, is not what it should be in this country. Right. It doesn't surprise me that women get sneakily or maybe not so sneakily forced out of their jobs when mm-hmm. they become pregnant or that women are hired less be- because they might become pregnant that is heartbreaking but not surprising to me. Mm-hmm. What surprised me was that I realized the division of labor in my own home was mm-hmm. not what was not equal at all and that it was primarily because Uh, there was a culture at the place where my husband worked where I think there was an expectation that because I was working from home and maybe because I was a mom um, that I was going to be doing most of the child rearing and that it was expected that he would be like the quote unquote ideal worker, which is (sighs) something I reported on a lot. Yeah. Which meant he had to be at the office all the time and make work his number one priority at all times. And Right. But, but, you know, here I was, I was running my own business. That was also very time consuming. And really it it was sort of like a come to Jesus moment for me and my husband. And now things are very different and they are much more equally divided. I'm so glad you brought this up,
0: Hillary, because on the flip side of all of this, when dads are the lead parent, when dads are the primary caregiver, they face a lot of sexism too, but it's this benevolent sexism, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you're super dad staying at home to take care of the kids and then congratulating the working mom like she's so lucky to have this super dad, you know, rather than letting it be a norm. Um, So how should we be thinking about this when the sexism falls on the caregiving dads? Because it's just the opposite side of the same problematic coin.
1: Yeah, we should just be thinking of it as that if there are to parents in the home that there should be equity. Yeah. I think it's the same answer, but also I think the answer is that everybody should have a division of some kind of work-life balance. Everybody needs that and you're a more productive worker when you have that
2: Totally. You know, a lot of times these issues with modern motherhood get talked about as they're sort of individual issues, you know? It's like each person has their own set of issues and Mm -hmm. instead of the systemic thing. So I'm curious if you've seen some sort of consistent thread in your reporting that you Mm -hmm. could point to as like, these are the really key systemic issues.
1: Man, I mean, like number one is that whenever somebody tells me a story, they feel so alone <laughs> everyone feels like they're the only one going through the thing that they're going through
2: yeah
0: so let me just ask a follow-up right away then what do we do about this sense of isolation and alienation how can we better bridge to one another
1: I think by talking about this stuff more I mean that was really the mission of the longest shortest time was to be telling enough diverse stories that at any given time Many people would be listening to a story about somebody who, on the surface, they would think they could not relate to. And then the story would be universal enough that they would be able to relate. And then maybe that listener would be less judgmental the next time they heard somebody else make a choice like the one they heard in the story.
0: Yeah, in social science, it's called contact theory, right? You're supposed to come into contact with that which you might not classify as part of your group, right. you know, but then yeah. that repeated contact ends up building a lot of empathy and love.
2: Yeah.
1: Yes. And we definitely saw this around one of our most popular series called The Accidental Gay Parents, where one of the partners in that couple was a transgender man, um, still had a uterus, and gave birth to a child. And we heard from a bunch of listeners who said, you know, I wouldn't normally think I could relate to someone like Tristan, but I totally can. And now I see and interact with transgender people differently. That's awesome.
2: I want to read you something that you wrote in your email to me, because I want to ask you about it. You said that um, my op-ed came out a year ago and I still get head
1: pats. You know, I, I left everybody anonymous in my op ed because at the time that those things happened, like I said, I, I didn't realize that they were things that shouldn't be happening. And so there was no confrontation. But since then, I've had a couple of things happen. And this stuff is like on the internet. So I can talk about it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the first one is I went on The Gist, The Gist, a podcast on Slate. So I was interviewed by Mike Pesca. Thursday, January 31st, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist on Mike Pesca, And we talked about my book, Weird Parenting Wins. From bathroom things to sleep time things to discipline things. And then you have, you know, 20 different parents from around the world weighing in on what worked for them. And then I went and saw the post and the subtitle on the post said, Professional mom, Hillary Frank, is here to give you permission to tell white lies and make everything a game. What is wrong with that sentence?
2: Wow. Wow. (laughs) What's it like being a
1: professional mom, Hillary? (laughs) Right. Exactly. So (laughs) I called Mike and I said, look, you can't call me a professional mom. That's not a thing. We need to change it. You can call me a podcaster, you can call me an author, just change it from professional mom. Yeah. And at first he said, Well, you know, if we change it, we're gonna need to actually make an official correction. And that might look weird and like call more attention to it. And I yeah. was like, Good. Let's do it. <laughs> let's call attention to it. And so I'm gonna, I'm on the page right now and I'm going to read you the correction. Okay. It says, correction February 1st, 2019. This post originally misidentified Hillary Frank as a quote, professional mom. She is an author. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I love that.
0: That's so good. Well, author and podcaster and editor and businesswoman. <laughs> yes. Not <laughs> professional mom, Hillary Frank. We thank you so much. I so enjoyed this conversation. Yeah. Thanks for making
1: the time, Hillary. Thanks for having me.
0: I had fun. And, Hillary, where can folks find you?
1: People can find me at hillaryfrank.com, and they can find The Longest Shortest Time at longestshortesttime.com. Okay, this Thanks, was a delight. Hillary.
2: Thanks, Hillary. Thanks. Okay, so this whole thing of realizing you have an uneven division of labor in your own home, I feel like a lot of people are having that realization amidst COVID, right?
0: Yeah, with everyone at home, you're having to really divide labor in different ways and really divvying up tasks all the time. Neither my husband nor I want to be the captain homeschool, right? Because we would much rather be working. (laughs) So it's constantly this negotiation of who doesn't have to do the teaching or the setting up of the devices for Zoom school.
2: Yeah, that's right. And the thing I worry about is that everyone is just sort of triaging right now, just trying to get through and survive, Even though this just keeps going on for longer and longer and longer, I don't know a lot of people who are like, hey, let's take a pause and think deeply about how to make this work better. (laughs) But maybe maybe I'm just not talking to enough people. We're all just trying to survive. (laughs)
0: Okay, a huge thanks to Hillary Frank, a busy lady, for making time for us. Yeah, she's great. Thank you for listening. That's it for this time. We should mention that this podcast is a co-production of our respective companies. Yeah. Reasonable volume. And critical frequency. And is produced by Rachel Swayby And
2: mixed and mastered at the 805 Room in Santa Barbara. We
0: are doing labor just as a labor of love. But if you are liking this kind of stuff, please subscribe. Rate and review. And tell your friends to subscribe. Mm-hmm. Also, we want to hear your takes, your ideas for everything. Episodes. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at our handles at Elise Who, E L I S E W H O, and at Amy Westervelt, A M Y W E S T E R V E L T. Okay, until next time, thanks for listening. Bye.